And Jesus spoke to the storm and said, peace, be still. Who knows, maybe in God's good providence, he's, uh, he's putting some moisture on the dry grass for 4th of July for when these, the fireworks land, you know, the place won't go up in flames. Um, <clears throat> California, it's so dry. This is more rain than we get in Southern California all year long. And uh, frequently during 4th of July, um, things catch on fire. Uh, the woods, the, the, uh, the grass. One year, our neighbor's roof caught on fire. There were people in the neighborhood behind us who had those, you know, the big, I don't know what they are, the launch, you know, the kind of uh, fireworks that launch into the sky and the big explosions, not the little ones you twirl around in your hand. And it landed on our neighbor's roof, and his roof caught fire, and everybody was over there you know, trying to put it out. So, uh, so let's, let's uh, pray that. We're continuing in our series through Luke, and uh, I was not here last week. I missed worship week, but we're continuing in our series through Luke, and we're in the fifth chapter, and um, our sermon this morning is what Jesus did not come to do. That sounds like a, a weird sermon title. But turn to Matthew 5, uh, starting in verse 27. The word of the Lord. And after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. In those days, you did not sit at a chair around a table. You lied down on pillows, and so you reclined as you ate. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God, our Father, now we pray and ask that you would illuminate, Lord, the words spoken this morning, our hearts also, that we might understand, Lord, what what Christ meant in that he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We pray that the Holy Spirit would convict our hearts and convince us of the truth of your word. In Christ's name, we always pray. Amen. Well, you know, it's been popular for decades now uh, for Christians to say, I'm not religious, Uh, I just have a relationship with God, right? We've all said that, right? I mean, it's definitely something Protestants say. I don't know that Roman Catholics say that, but as Protestants, we all say that, right? And um, the problem with that is to the sinner or to the unbeliever or the skeptic, when you say, I'm not religious, I just have a relationship with God, uh, praying and reading your Bible and going to church and conforming your life to ethical uh, commands and scripture seems very religious, Right? It seems pretty religious to the unbeliever when we do those things, even though with our mouths we may say, well, we're not religious. 
And when people hear the phrase, you know, relationship, not religion, they often interpret that to mean, um, I can serve God however I encounter him. Riding my Harley on a, you know, on a Sunday morning with the wind at my back and the sun on my face, because that's where I experience God. That's where I have a relationship with God. I remember we had a friend in church years ago, and I was into the outdoors, and we were all into hiking, and he stopped, just stopped showing up to church. And uh, we would say, you know, where are you? Where, where have you been? He says, well, you know, I'm out camping on the weekends, you know, every weekend, because I feel God in the trees. And, uh, and a friend of mine at church said, well, you know, the Bible says the Lord dwells in the midst of his people, not in the midst of trees. Um, but anyways, it was this kind of subjective, I can make it whatever I want to be. And um, Jesus, it's important for us to understand that he wasn't against religion so much as he was against the wrong type of religion, okay? So when we think about, you know, relationship, not religion, yes, that's true, there's nothing wrong with that statement, but we have to understand that, you know, Jesus was an observant religious Jew. And so what he is going after is the wrong kind of religion, uh, the 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard identified two types, types of religion. Religion A is religion, you know, faith in name only, right? Uh, we call that nominal Christianity. That's religion A, people who are outwardly, uh, you know, religious on the surface. And then religion B is, on the other hand, a life-transforming, destiny-changing experience. And it's a definite commitment to the crucified, risen Savior, which establishes a personal relationship between a forgiven sinner and a gracious God. So the right kind of religion creates the relationship, right? If our religion is the biblical religion, then, then we have a relationship with God. And the challenge of Jesus for every one of us, especially if we are Christians, church-going people, the challenge for us is to shed the wrong kind of religion, man-made religion, the religion of self-righteousness that blocks God out altogether. Because after all, if a person perceives that they're righteous and they're good and they're deserving of eternal life, well, why do you need God? Right? So, this is exactly what Jesus is challenging here in this passage. He's challenging the wrong kind of religion. He's challenging self righteousness. He's challenging the idea among the Pharisees and whoever's present or watching or nearby or those reading all of these years later. He's challenging self righteousness, the kind of attitude that says, you know, um, well, you know, if there is a God, I know I'll be okay because I know I'm a good person. I can't tell you how many in interactions I've had with friends or coworkers or people through the years who um, weren't really believers. Some of them were outright atheists, but they had this confidence that if there was a God, that they would be okay because they knew they were good people. And that's actually a problem not just with unbelievers, but it's a problem also with religious people, people who have the wrong kind of religion, is they trust in themselves. 
And so what I want us to see this morning is that Jesus did not come to save good or righteous people. And if I asked you, why is that, congregation, you would say, huh? Shout it out. Thank you, because there aren't any. Exactly right. He didn't come to save good people. He didn't come to save righteous people because there aren't any. Amen. But he came to call sinners to repentance. So the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus invites imperfect people into his kingdom. Look at verse 27. It says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, there are two different words in the New Testament for tax collector. One is the arch tax collector, the guy who kind of is the boss of all of the tax collectors. That would be someone like Zacchaeus. And then there would be more of a low-level tax collector, and that would be Levi. So he's kind of just a, uh, a grunt tax collector, but he's a tax collector nonetheless. And... <clears throat> The Roman occupation of Israel in the first century involved more than just a military presence. The nation of Israel was subjected to Roman taxation. And Romans were the first to franchise out, they were the first to do franchise businesses. You know what a franchise is? You know, you can get in and you can buy in and, you know, you can use the name and make some money and you make the the corporation money, but you also make yourself some money on the side. So what the Romans did is they would give out tax collecting to the highest bidder. So what they would say is, we need taxes collected from the region of Capernaum. And several people would show up and say, we can give you, you know, hypothetically, 6,000 shekels a month or a quarter. And someone said, I can get you seven. And the whole idea was, after you collected what was required by the empire, anything over that, what? It was yours. So the tax collectors, of course, were enterprising people, but they were hated by the Jews. They often were Jews who saw a way to make a buck for the Romans and for the authorities, and they were hated because of that, and because they essentially were taking money from people who didn't have it, and giving it to, to the Roman Empire who was oppressing and occupying their nation. So there was resentment and there was hatred. And if you were a Jew, um, your fellow Jews resented you. In fact, the Talmud, an ancient Jewish commentary and document, said that the tax collector was like a robber. He was a treacherous traitor. They were hated people. And so the tax collectors, because they didn't have friends among respectable people, they were just friends with themselves, essentially. You know how it is, if you were kind of a nerd in school, who'd you hang out with? Well, you hung out with the other nerds because, you know, they understood where you, what, what, what you were going through, right? They were rejected by the cool kids or the jocks or whoever it was, and they hung out together. Well, that's how it was with the tax collectors. The tax collectors hung out with each other, and they were resented, and they were hated And it's not hard to see how or why they were viewed as vile traitors. And so because of their profession, they were also seen as unclean, which meant they were barred from the the synagogues. 
Um, they weren't allowed to, they, they weren't, they weren't ceremonial, ceremonially unclean in the traditional sense where they had touched something unclean, but they were unclean in the, in the sense that they were allied with their, the enemies of Israel. And you can imagine the pain of a person who knows they're hated and resented. It's not good, not fun to be hated. And no one really likes being disliked. I know there's a couple people in my life who say, I don't care what people think of me. And I may believe that to an extent, but everybody deep down cares what others think of you. And so here's Levi, who's resented, and you can imagine that there is just this abiding pain in his heart, knowing he's hated, and maybe he learned this you know, from his father or someone else, and it's all he's ever known. But you can imagine the pain that he experiences. How many of you ever heard of Rosario Butterfield? So a handful of you might know who Rosario, Rosaria Butterfield is. Rosaria Butterfield was an English professor and gay lesbian activist at Syracuse University. And today she's married to a Presbyterian pastor and has five children. And she has a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I recommend this book. In fact, if you, if you just want to watch, see or read a remarkable story of conversion, pick up this book. It's fantastic. But she writes in that book that she um, was converted to Christianity after she was befriended by a Christian pastor who understood that her being a lesbian was not her biggest sin. Her unbelief was. And it was only after this pastor she met um, addressed that that he even talked to her about her personal sins. And this pastor, Ken Smith, um, before he came along, she found it easy to defeat uh, Christians because most Christians um, she encountered just presented a simplistic moralism. You know, God hates you, God hates blank. You've seen the banners. You know, there are some people who profess themselves to be Christians, you know, who, you know, protest at funerals and all these types of things. And what she remarks on is none of that was the gospel. None of that was the gospel of God's grace. And when she met Ken Smith, what he did was um, he took time with her. And she says, had not a pastor named Ken Smith shared the gospel with me for years and years over and over again, not in some used carsman set, not in some used car salesman kind of way, but in an organic, spontaneous, and compassionate way. All of the questions about God and myself might have remained lodged in my mind, and I would have, and I would have never met the most unlikely of friends, Jesus Christ himself. And one of the things she remarked on, I, met, I mentioned it a minute ago, is he didn't talk to her about her sins individually until he talked to her about sin as a whole and what it means to be alienated from a holy and righteous God. And what's helpful for us to recognize is that all sinners long for acceptance, like Levi. We're all created with this need to be loved, to be accepted, to be embraced, to be in relationship with others, to be in community. But sin alienates us from God. And it alienates us from others. Levi is alienated not only from God, but he's alienated from his community. 
And he's so distressed and burdened by his sins, even though on the surface it doesn't look that way. And I want to tell you something that when you think about people in your life who would never come to know Christ, and that may prevent you from ever opening up your mouth, I want to tell you that God is at work in the hearts of more people than you think he is. God is already at work in the hearts of people, and some of the most, uh, uh, the hardest cases, people who seem like the most unlikely converts, like Rosaria Butterfield, a English prof- an English professor, a lesbian, gay activist, you know, she would write columns in favor of you know, uh, gay rights in the local newspapers, you know, and sometimes they would go into the national newspapers. And so when you think about unlikely converts, you have to know that oftentimes people are tormented by their sins. And they're not just tormented by their sins, but inwardly there is a longing, a hunger, and thirst for righteousness. And Matthew 5 says, blessed are those who hunger, and thirst for righteousness, for they will what? They'll be filled. And Jesus comes along because he knows where Levi is. He's hungering and thirsting for righteousness, tormented by his sin. In fact, later on in the book of Luke in the 18th chapter, it's quite possible that Jesus, knowing the heart of Levi when he gives the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, some of you know that story, right? A certain Pharisee went into the temple to pray, and he said, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, sinners like this tax collector. He praises himself. And then the tax collector, the publican, prays. He won't even lift his head up to heaven, but he, he, he smotes his breast, Right? He drops his head in shame and says, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went away to his home justified. And that's important for us because when we think about who Jesus came to save, who he didn't come to save, Jesus comes to those who know that they need him. Levi is filled in an instant when Jesus says, follow me. He's accepted by Jesus. The moment that Jesus locks eyes with him and says, get up and follow me, there is this earth-shattering transition from the old life to the new life. And he's so convinced that he's found the answer um, that in verse 28, it tells us that in leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And you might just say, well, how do we know he didn't just get up from where he was at and just go you know, hang out with Jesus for a little bit? Uh, um, you know, why do you think this is a conversion here? The two Greek verbs, got up and followed, both illustrate that there is a decisive decision uh, to break with the past. He is not just physically standing up and walking away from the tax booth. He is literally walking away from his old life. And he gets up and he follows Christ. And the the, the language denotes that there is a process of continual following going on. He didn't just physically follow Jesus to his destination, but he became a follower 
of Christ. This extortioner, this robber, this, this tax collector, this traitor, he becomes not just a follower of Christ, but guess what? He becomes Matthew. This Levi is Matthew, the writer of the first gospel. He becomes one of the 12 apostles. I mean, you'd think that Jesus, right, that Jesus is saying, I want the cream of the crop, the guys with the highest grades in seminary, you know, the, the, the theologically brilliant guys. I want those guys, those squeaky clean guys who come from such a rich, you know, uh, heritage. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even care about that. He picks sinners. He picks people who are despised by the community. He picks fishermen, you know, people without an education. Those are the people that Jesus picks. And what's interesting is that by picking people who in the eyes of everyone else seem the most unlikely, it's a way for God to be glorified. Because see, when the sinner, who may be vile in his actions and behavior and his rebellion, her rebellion to God, come to follow God, that's more mind-boggling. In, in, in this context, Jesus doesn't call the Pharisees, he calls the sinners. And so sin alienates us, but God calls us in Christ. And God doesn't just forgive us, he gives us new identities. He makes us new creations in Christ. And Levi, here's this sinner who's been saved, and he knows that all of his other tax collector friends probably felt just like he did. Hated and resented alienated from the community, barred from the synagogue. You know what he does? He says, well, if I felt this way, I know all my tax collector friends felt this way. And what does he do? He throws a banquet. In verse 29, Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And verse 30, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying... Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See the criticism? Criticism is, if you're a righteous man, you should be hanging out with righteous people. That's the criticism. And for us, it's hard to understand. We think, you know, you, share, you have lunch with someone, or you have dinner with someone, and they may be a stranger, or you don't even have to like them. It's not a big deal in our day and age, right? It's just not a big deal. You know, you, you, you show up, you have lunch with someone, and... You know, they, someone else brings a friend. Well, in those days, if you shared a meal with someone, someone it symbolized shared lives. It symbolized intimacy and kinship and unity. In fact, in a few moments when we come to the table after the sermon, for us it represents our communal life together as the church and the members of the body of Christ. Jesus' action of eating with the toll collectors, it draws this protest from the Pharisees. But here's the real rub, okay? The Pharisees are a part of a group of people who are outwardly moral, but inwardly they're wretched. Remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. Have you ever been to a cemetery and seen a mausoleum? 
The mausoleum is pretty on the outside, isn't it? It's made of granite or it's made of some type of stone that's very beautiful. And Jesus tells the Pharisees, you're righteous on the outside. You have an outward morality for other people to see, but inwardly you're like, there's dead man's bones. That's what a mausoleum is. That's what a whitewashed tomb is. And this is the rub because for the Pharisees, they have cultivated this image to the world. They've cultivated this image of righteousness and cleanliness and moral integrity for everyone else to see. But see, Jesus knows the real deal because he sees the heart. He knows what's really going on on the inside. This is the controversy. Their lives are in denial, the Pharisees. Jesus is associating with people who aren't pretending. Remember how how the last few weeks I've been harping on this, this dichotomy between the humble and the proud. In fact, the Bible doesn't, the New Testament doesn't always speak in the language, in fact, rarely speaks in the language of sinner and saint but it speaks in the language of the proud and the humble, whether believer or unbeliever, because the Bible says in James that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Whenever I hear that passage, I think of like, you know, a linebacker running up the field, you know, stiff-arming people, you know, anyone trying to tackle them or get close to them. You know, Jesus is resisting the proud, and the Pharisees are proud, They presume that they're accepted with God because of their outward righteousness. And look at what Jesus says in verse 31. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus doesn't call those who think that they've got it all together. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I struggle every Sunday to come to church because my life is such a mess, I want to tell you, everyone else is in the exact same boat as you. We all struggle to show up on Sunday morning because it feels like this is the place for righteous people and we know we're not righteous. I feel that way. And every week there's a struggle and a challenge to put on what seems like or to behave in a way that seems like there's this, you know, there's this divide, right, between what we are trying to be outwardly and what we all know we are inwardly. And you know what Jesus wants? He just wants us to confess it. He wants us us to acknowledge it. Godly people, Christians, are repenting people, not non-repenting people. That's why we repent on Sunday mornings. We come together, we confess our sins. You want to know why? Because it's good to be in the habit of reminding ourselves that we're sinners who still need God's grace even though we're Christians, even though we've confessed Christ, even though we know, we believe by faith and trust that he has saved us by grace, we still confess, we still fall short. This is Martin Luther's maxim, famous saying, Justified, but simultaneously sinners. We're sinners saved by grace. We're justified, but at the same time, we're still sinners, which means we still need Jesus every day. We need the cross every day. 
The cross for us isn't just this one-time event that cleanses us. It does. It does cleanse us for all time and eternity. But for ourselves, for our, our lives, and for our behavior, we still need to remind ourselves that Jesus is the one who makes us right with God because we continually fall short. And so it's not about pretending we don't have sin or just recognizing our sin and abandoning the Christian walk. It's about both of these things together. Realizing that God has accepted us in Jesus, but also that we still fall short and we need Jesus every day. The Pharisees think they're righteous and they won't repent because of their self-righteousness. What you'll find as you encounter people more and more who may not be believers is that when you offer Jesus' embrace through the gospel, of, right, which offers forgiveness, that it resonates with them. And it will resonate. I mean, it resonated with you, right? That the gospel resonates in ways that you might not think it does because God is already at work in the hearts of every human being convicting them. God has created every human being with this kind of moral homing device where everyone really knows that they're sinful. They may not confess it, but when you, when you start talking about Jesus and the gospel and what he came to do, which is not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, it resonates. Levi, as a tax collector, he's living under the crushing guilt of his own sin when Jesus called him. When Jesus locked eyes with him, the levee broke. Right? The, the waters just came flooding out, and he literally walked away from that old life on the spot. And you know, we have to be careful that we're not just like the Pharisees, who judge the visible sins of others greater than the hidden sins of our inward hearts. Because when we do that, we become hypocrites. And that's a danger for us. Because on the surface, we may be pretty squeaky clean. We have our lives together. We dress nice, right? We look nice, you know? Uh, we don't rob our neighbor's house when they go on vacation. You know, we... we, you know, we we don't stuff, you know, candy in our pocket in the grocery store. We pay for, you know, I mean, hopefully we're not doing that. I worked in a grocery store for a long time, and you would be surprised how many people do that. We'd be in the upper, you know, the top management room, and we'd be looking down on aisle nine. That guy just put a bunch of candy in his pocket. But, you know, we have all, outwardly our lives are together, and it can be tempting to judge people who outwardly his lives are not together, but we know, if we're honest, that our hearts are also sinful. And the only difference between us and the homosexual or the liar or the cheat or the murderer or anyone else is that we've been forgiven. That's really the only difference. We're really no different. We need Jesus just as much as everyone else does. And that ought to animate us and energize us to want to, like Levi with his tax-collecting friends who had a banquet and said, Look, I want to tell you what this Jesus did. That's where our hearts ought to be. We can never stop being repentant people because Jesus came not to save the righteous, but to preach repentance to sinners. 
And if you're here this morning and you've never asked God to forgive you of your sins and you've never decided, right, consciously to follow Christ, it's really as simple as asking God to have mercy on you and forgive you. Like that tax collector in Luke 18, the parable where he bowed his head and said, God, have mercy on a sinner like me. And Jesus said he went home justified. It's as simple as asking God to cleanse you of your sins and really just start following Christ and join yourself to a body of believers, whether this church or another. I want us to pray. Let's pray. Father, we don't presume that every one of us, maybe who even have attended this church for some time, um, have already come to know you in the form of repentance, acknowledgement, and faith. We pray, O oh God, that uh, if there is one here this morning who has not done that, that you would motivate and inspire and you would, Lord, move upon their hearts to cry out to you in, to re in repentance and faith. We also pray, O oh God, for the rest of us who may have done that, but we still fall short. Help us not to be like the Pharisees were, who though outwardly religious and moral, still had sins of the heart. Lord, it can be so easy for us to fall into hypocrisy, but help us not to do that. Help us to trust in you. Help us to follow after you and to be people of repentance. We know that you always offer forgiveness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.